This is Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week, listening back to some of our favorite interviews of 2020, including one with theoretical physicist Brian Greene. You know, I felt more fully than ever before that the work of a physicist is to illuminate the external objective world, but that's only part of the story. And the other part of the story, the inner world of experience, needs to have as vital a part in the full story that we tell ourselves. And from science, we shift to the calming words of California poet Jane Hirschfield. Poetry, art, the mind of art, it's a bit like water. It will find the smallest crack of entry, and it will travel to that place, and it will spread. It will disseminate itself. It will, it will try to reach new destinations. Art, science, and remembering a year of profound change ahead on Life Examined. Today, we're going to revisit some of our favorite conversations from 2020, a year unlike any other. The coronavirus has been a reminder that things can change fast and unexpectedly. And as much as we look for stability, the world doesn't always work that way. In recent years, this has been heavily on the mind of our first guest, the theoretical physicist Brian Greene at Columbia University. You might know Green from his best-selling books like The Elegant Universe, which was adapted into a program on PBS. His newest book is perhaps his most personal. It's called Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe. Using the laws of physics, Green explains that ultimately the universe will not be able to host human life in the future. This leads Green into a deeper conversation about finding meaning now, knowing that nothing will last the test of time. Brian Green, thanks for joining us on KCRW. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Well, Brian, here we are as the coronavirus continues to change, you know, not just our daily life, but I think for a lot of people, how we think about life and how we understand the fragility of things around us and how quickly it, it can all change. I wonder for you, when, when this theme of impermanence really started to kind of um, rise up in you? I think at some level it was probably always with me, and I think, frankly, it's always with everyone. I think at various levels of conscious awareness, we know that we are impermanent. We know that our lives are finite, and it hits us in different ways at different times, You know, depending upon where we are mentally, spiritually, and what's happening in the world around us. Now, for me in particular, when I was in college and was starting to seriously think about, you know, what I wanted to do, I, I had a conversation with a, with a friend who was really a mentor of mine as I was growing up. He was a mathematician. And he said to me that, he said, he said he does mathematics because once you prove a theorem in mathematics, it's true forever. Yeah. It will never not be true. And that just hit me as like a powerful moment when I recognize that you can't say that about many things in the world. And, and that's when I started to really think about what do we have available in this life that does transcend our own impermanence. Right. And, and I know there was another book that you were reading. Uh, I don't know if it was around the same time, but it was by Ernest Becker. I, it's, it's interesting. This is a book that I had to even look up myself, but it's pretty interesting. Can you, can you tell us what that book is called and kind of the impact it made on you? Yeah, it was more or less the same time. I became sort of deeply obsessed with these issues of, of mortality and impermanence. 
And I came upon a book by, as you say, it's by Ernest Becker. It's called The Denial of Death. And Becker was this, first of all, wonderful writer. The book won the Pulitzer Prize in the 70s. And he was channeling, in some sense, the ideas initially developed by Otto Rank, who was one of the early Freudians who ultimately broke with Freud. But, but Becker, in developing Rank's ideas, just so poetically and so beautifully laid out the tension that we humans are under all the time because mm -hmm. we have these minds that can soar to the edge of the cosmos the way it can with an Albert Einstein. We have these minds that can produce these spectacular works of literature and art and beauty, but all within the recognition that after a finite duration on this planet, we are, as Becker put it, we are put into the ground to decay and rot forever. And so mm -hmm. it's this notion of decay and rot is your ultimate right. destiny versus the creative spirit that we humans are able to use to transcend the mortal awareness and mortal existence. So at one and the same time, you can soar to the edge of the universe, but you're also going to be turned into food for worms. Right. And, and I mean, I'm trying to think about this in your life right now. I mean, as you go about kind of a lot of the work you've done and the research you've done, which which kind of would be labeled under that 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 kind of permanence, that idea that you're creating something that will outlive you. I mean, I, I get a sense that 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 was an important part of who you were or where you were going. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, there was definitely the sensibility that if you can uncover the deep laws of the universe, you are touching something that was always true long before there was even life in the universe and will always be true even long after life has left this universe. And one of the things I do in the book is I explore that idea with a greater attention to the details than I possibly could have when I was, you know, in my early 20s. And, you know, the book is an exploration of the degree to which that is actually true, right? Mm. Does, uh, does a law of physics, does quantum mechanics, I mean, it exists independently of human beings, but does it have any meaning or value or purpose in the absence of human beings or in the absence of another life form that can contemplate it? I mean, what does, what does a deep equation mean? if there isn't any conscious awareness to contemplate it. So yeah. in a sense, in, in a sense, you know, certainly I, I gain a certain kind of fulfillment when I say read and deeply study Einstein's equations of the general theory of relativity. They're talking about black holes and space and time and all the things that transcend little life forms crawling around on planet Earth. But at the same time, I recognize that in the far future, when, and you can argue, and I do this in the book, you can argue that it's quite likely that there won't be any life forms in the very far future, huge timescales. And without life forms to contemplate Einstein's equations of the general theory of relativity, it's hard for me to see that they really have any standing in terms of the permanence that we as living creatures aspire to. Right. And I wonder if you could just go a little bit further and clarify this for us uh, in the simplest terms possible. I mean, 
you know, I've heard that the, the universe will change, that perhaps we may not uh, see human life as we see it now long into the future. But but if you could tell us, I mean, what is going to happen a long ways out? What are we talking about here such that some of these uh, theorems we're coming up with now may not be uh, may not be relevant or there may not be humans to observe them? What's going to happen? Yeah, sure. You know, I like to think about the unfolding of cosmic history as a dance between two forces, and the forces are the force of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. I think many people have at least heard of that idea, which says that there's an overwhelming tendency of everything in the universe to disintegrate, to fall apart, to wither away. There is a drive from order toward disorder that we understand fairly well using the laws of physics, and we also understand it fairly well at an intuitive level. You look around the world, and things are always heading in that direction of disintegration. At the same time, there's another force, and that's the force of evolution, which tends to take material objects and through the process of natural selection, refine them into ever more complex and ever more efficient collections that are ever better able to survive in an ever-changing world. And we as human beings, we are the result of evolution, and that evolutionary process allows us to stave off entropic decay for a period of time. That's what we do as living beings. We take in ordered structures from the world and we release entropy to the environment, allowing our own entropy to stay low. But you can argue that in the far future, the balance of power is going to shift to entropy. And in the very far future, entropy will win this battle. So degradation is ultimately what's in store. Stars ultimately will fall apart Planets will fall apart. Living systems will fall apart into their constituent particles. And indeed, as I do in the book, you can argue that in roughly, you can't give precise time frames, but in about 10 to the 50 years, that is a huge number. We're now sure. 10 to the 10 years from the Big Bang. So in 10 to the 50 years, and that 40 is in the exponent. So it's not like 40 years from now. It's you know 10 to the 40 years beyond you know multiplication uh, anything that we've experienced so far it's a huge factor of time but over those time scales the universe it turns out will no longer be able to accept the entropic waste that even the very process of thought requires thought is a physical process it emits entropy it emits waste it creates disorder and the universe will not be able to absorb that disorder. So basically, any thinking being that tries to think one more thought will fry in the waste mm. produced by the very process of thought itself. It will overheat and die. And so in that sense, life and thought are likely a finite process in a universe that itself could be infinite. Mm. And I mean, what was it like for you uh, to kind of come to, to grips with this. I mean, I'd imagine th there must have been just some kind of an existential awakening of like, okay, well, here I have, I've, I've been working on what I thought were these, you know, permanent laws, but but this is going to look radically different a long, a long time from now. But still, I, I'd imagine there was some kind of an internal shift that took place in you. There was, without a doubt. And, you know, there's some physicists 
who would roll their eyes at the kind of conversation that we're having now and say, look, the timescales that you're thinking about are so enormous that they become irrelevant to any human being. They're just too long to worry about. And I have to tell Mm -hmm. you, I disagree with that perspective because to my mind, regardless of how long the timescales are, if you recognize that we occupy a finite part of that, you realize that for the bulk of cosmic history until today, there was no life. And for the bulk of the cosmic history that will play out in the future, there will be no life. So how could that not impact your view of how you fit into the cosmic unfolding? And for me, definitely, there was a a period of time, you know, I don't want to overemphasize or maybe exaggerate, but it was kind of a dark period for me. Mm. I definitely went through a dark stance where the kind of permanence that I imagined that, in, and I'm not even trying to say that my own work would be permanent, that's, that's, that's the icing on the cake, but to immerse yourself in ideas that you think are touching on the permanent, that are transcending human impermanence, whether it's quantum mechanics or relativity or what have you, that was how I lived my life for, for many decades. And then to recognize that that perspective is probably not right what was a shift but then i had this other moment and i talk about this in the book it was for me a weird moment an unfamiliar moment where of all places i I was sitting in a starbucks right i mean talking about big ideas and i was like (laughs) in this you know bastion of american consumerism you know fast food in essence and i was sitting there and i had this this epiphany kind of i don't know like i even wondered if my 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 Earl Grey may have had some bad soy milk or something. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't figure it out. But I had this shift that happened inside of me where I just sort of felt like a, a change in perspective from grasping for a fleeting and ephemeral future that's forever receding to just focusing on the here and now and using my life as a physicist to understand the totality of the unfolding from the beginning to the formation of stars and planets and people and on to their destruction in the far future, but not to look to the far future for value and purpose, rather to do what we've heard from mindfulness teachers and sages and philosophers across the ages, but I was getting there from a cosmological perspective to focus on the here and now as that is the only place in which value and meaning can actually have an anchor because value and meaning are artificial. They're manufactured. They're human constructs, and that doesn't diminish them. To me, it grandizes them because we are the force that yields meaning and purpose, and that meaning and purpose is to be found right here and right now. I mean, so it sounds like in some ways uh, you had to kind of shift the perspective inwards, if I'm hearing this correctly as well. I mean, and asking yourself, what is of worth in the time that I have now? What what can I grasp onto? And Yeah, well, I, well, I totally agree with that. And I just want to pick up on it because, you know, as a, as a scientist, as a physicist, we are trained through years of study in school to try to pull the subjective out of our work. The goal, say, as a physicist, is to understand the objective reality, the things out there that everyone will agree on. 
whether you're doing your physics in New York City or if you're doing it in Tokyo or if you're doing it in Nigeria, it doesn't matter because you're focusing upon qualities of the world that transcend who you are, where you are, or anything of the moment. And, and yes, my, my training was just like that. And the shift that you described is exactly right. I was shifting to allowing the inner world of conscious experience, the inner world of self-reflection to be joined within my own professional journey in a deeper way than I had ever allowed it in the past. And so I now recognize, and look, I've known this for a long time, but I hadn't really felt it. You know, I felt more fully than ever before that the work of a physicist is to illuminate the external objective world, but that's only part of the story. And the other part of the story, the inner world of experience, needs to have as vital a part in the full story that we tell ourselves because that full story is a deeply human story and it's one that needs to blend the objective and the subjective in a way that illuminates what it means to be human under the brightest possible light. You know, as you, as you say this, my mind, when I think of the different religious traditions, uh, it goes towards Buddhism in a way, um, which, which I think grasps the impermanence of things, which understands that we are the product of causes and conditions. And, and in this book, you tell this, this, this kind of wonderful story about a conversation you had with the Dalai Lama, which I think kind of encapsulates what you just said. Can you tell us what that interaction was like and what he told you? Yeah, for sure. I was asked to speak at a, a conference down in, I believe it was Houston, and I was not in conversation with the Dalai Lama per se in this public forum, but the organizers asked me if I would ask the Dalai Lama some questions at the conclusion of his part of the program, and right, I, of right. course, was happy to do so. And I asked him, you know, a question that I've been thinking about for a long time because I said, look, there are so many books that are written that suggest that modern physics is rediscovering ideas that were developed years ago, ages ago in, in the Far East. You know, you have books like the Tao of Physics and the Dancing Wooly Masters, and I never really saw much in those books. So I asked him, mm. what do you think? You know, are we physicists <laughs> just rediscovering the things that have been well known to people who say were from the Buddhist tradition or other traditions that originated in the Far East? And he said, no, I do not think that that is what you physicists are doing. He says, what you physicists are doing is leading the way to understanding the true nature of the objective world. And we as Buddhists need to follow you in the discoveries that you are making because we want our philosophy, our perspective, our tradition to be attuned and aligned with the true nature of the world. And that's what you guys are providing. He said, what we have to offer is a deeper understanding of consciousness. And he says, hmm. that's where I think that the Western traditions can learn a lot from what, say, happened in the Eastern traditions. It's in the level of conscious awareness. Does that resonate with you? I mean, because we're, we're, we're talking about this kind of shift inward here. And I know you write about consciousness in this book as well. But I mean, did, did those words stay with you as something you felt uh, as true? Well, I, I was deeply moved by them because... Here was a leader of a world tradition who was not afraid to say that science needs to lead the way in, in certain kinds of, of pathways toward truth. And, you know, can you imagine 
you know, other traditions saying that, it would be it would be a powerful moment if all the world's, say, philosophies and religions recognize that when it comes to understanding the particles and the forces and the cosmological unfolding, that science is where you turn. That would be a very powerful move. So mm. I, was, I was deeply moved by, by what he said. And yes, it has stuck with me in the sense that the inward journey is one that I do not feel that science is well equipped to guide us on you know william james and i quote him in the in the book as well i think said this best back in in 1903 1904 william james gave some lectures i believe they were in scotland and of course william james great scientist great you know psychologist right and 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 so he writes a book that isn't read as much as I think it should be called, you know, the varieties of religious experience. Sure. And in that, in that book, you know, he goes through the various ways in which we can be religious, that we can be spiritual beings while taking this from the standpoint of a scientist, scientific perspective. And he ends the book by basically saying something along the lines of what we've been describing. He says, look, science is really good at describing that external world, but that's not all there is. And he, and he goes into this beautiful poetic description where he, he talks about, you know, the, the, the poetry of the universe. He talks about, you know, the, the lyrical qualities of the summer rain. He talks about, you know, the, the breathtaking qualities of, of the eternal stars. And, mm. and within that, he says that we need to recognize that that inner response to the external world is as necessary and as powerful as our description in a scientific language of the external world. And that, to me, is what the spiritual journey is all about. It's trying to understand as deeply as we possibly can how we respond to the external world. And that is a deeply personal journey a deeply mm. subjective journey, not one that really fits within the rubric of scientific investigation. How has this kind of changed your life or how you spend your time or your day? I mean, did you find yourself kind of being drawn to, I don't know, meditation or to, to could be poetry, could be, it could be more art. I don't know. I mean, what yeah. do you see happening in yourself? Well, there definitely was a time, and this to me has really been a, a personal journey that's played out over decades too, but you know, when I reflect back on my perspective as a kid, the only thing that mattered to me were mathematical equations. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was five and six years old, that was it. I just wanted to, I mean, my dad would set me 30 digit by 30 digit multiplication problems, and that's how I'd spend the weekend as a kid. I just loved the fact that you could create new patterns of mathematical symbols by just combining them in a way that nobody had ever combined them before. And they hadn't done it, that combination, because nobody cared. Nobody should mm. care. But, but the fact that you could create something new it was, to me, deeply impactful. I, and I hated to read as a kid. Yeah. And, and frankly, even when I got to college, when I would go to the bookstore to buy a textbook for a science course, if it was chock full of equations, I would breathe a sigh of relief. It was full of words. I'd be like, oh, no. Oh, no. Not a textbook that has all these words, <laughs> sure. you know. Right. You know. But, but, you know, over the years, I've, I've radically shifted from that. To me, you know, I got there late. 
but the worlds of literature, the worlds of poetry, the world of art. And look, my dad was a composer, so I was embedded in the world of yeah. music from a young age, but I didn't pursue it, you know. But the worlds of music, these are things which now I consider to be the, the most precious of, of, of human undertakings. And especially when you can blend them with the undertaking of trying to understand the objective world, there can be magical unions between them. And, and in terms of how's it affected my life, well, I've now I've written stage pieces. I've I've collaborated with Philip Glass mm. on on a space opera where a boy goes to a black hole. You know, we had a PBS special last May where we did an onstage exploration of Einstein's discovery of the general theory of relativity, but in a theatrical format. And so to me, the blending of these worlds is the place where I, I get the greatest joy and the, and the greatest gratification. You know, it makes me also wonder if we can just go to, the, to one of the, the, the scarier parts of life. How do you think about the end of life for yourself as you kind of approach the fact that you too will at some point die? And, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about permanence and impermanence. I'm just curious, what, what, what do you think about now when, when we kind of talk, talk about that subject? Well, I can't help having a kind of reaction that I imagine is instilled in me and everyone else at some level by mm. evolution, right? I mean, I, you know, going back to Ernest Becker, I do find it terrifying to imagine that everything that I cared about and everything that I've worked on and, you know, family, friends, kids, that, that yeah. it all will be gone. Yeah. And if I allow myself to fully, to fully focus on just that, I, 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 I can find myself slipping back into a dark place. But at the same time, I have found a way to refine my reaction to that recognition merely by spending a lot of time thinking about it and thinking about it in the ways that, that we've been in discussing in our conversation here. And when I think about human life and the human contribution to understanding of the world and the universe within the grand cosmological unfolding... And this really is what drove me to write the book. I have to tell you, when I think about we fitting in in the progression from the Big Bang to the disintegration of stars and galaxies, I see it in a different way. I see human life as the product of mindless, purposeless laws of physics that have played out from the Big Bang with a huge array of quantum processes stretching from the beginning until now. Each of those quantum processes could have turned out differently. It could have turned out that way instead of this way, yielding right. a universe in which we wouldn't be here. And so kind of think about it as set against astounding odds. We are here. And that fills me with a deep sense of gratitude and a, and a deep sense of reverence. And it's not only gratitude and reverence for the mere fact of existence. It's gratitude and reverence for the fact that our particular collection of particles can do things, right? We can contemplate the world. We can create beauty, right? It's our collections of particles that built the pyramids, right? That, 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 that wrote Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It was a collection of particles like us. It's a collection of particles that wrote Macbeth and Julius Caesar and Hamlet. And, and the fact that mere collections of particles governed by physical law can do those things, I just find it deeply thrilling and it gives me a sense of reverence for being here and a thankfulness even in the face of our fleeting existence. Brian Greene is the author of Until the End of Time, 
mind, matter, and our search for meaning in an evolving universe. Brian, thanks for the conversation today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. We'll be back with Life Examined on KCRW after this short break. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We'll now continue with some of our favorite interviews of the year. From the scientific mind of Brian Greene, we move to the poetry of Jane Hirschfield. Hirschfield is a writer whose work has only grown more vital, more original, and more relevant in the current moment. Now, in her late 60s, her poems about climate change have circulated widely and have been used as battle cries among activists. Jane Hirschfield is also a deeply spiritual poet. In early adulthood, she put aside her writing to study Zen Buddhism for eight years in San Francisco. And though she may not call herself strictly a Zen poet, the essence of that tradition is infused in her work. In her collections, there is a heightened sense of silence, of noticing, of reflection, and a belief that poetry is inherently suited to times of upheaval. I spoke with Jane Hirschfield last summer, just as the world was coming to grips with the new reality of living in a pandemic. She had just released her latest collection of poems called Ledger. Well, Jane Hirschfield, thanks for joining us on KCRW. You're very welcome. It's great to be talking with you. Well, there is one poem in this collection I would love for you to read to us. It's called, You Go to Sleep in One Room and You Wake in Another. I think that's how so many of us have felt since the world has changed with COVID. Would you tell us a little bit about that poem and then read it for us? I'd be happy to. And I'll just say that what I was thinking about when I when I wrote this poem was coming up was the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing. And so that's what's behind some of the images in it. Uh, thinking about this world where 50 years ago I was standing there in Central Park watching the first human beings walk on the moon. Mm. Um, And here we are in this world. You go to sleep in one room and wake in another. You go to sleep in one room and wake in another. You go to sleep in one time and wake in another. Men land on the moon viewed in black and white, in static, on a big screen in Central Park, standing in darkness with others. Your grandfather did not see this. Your grandchildren will not see this. Soon now, 50 years back. Unemphatic, the wheelbarrowed stars hung above. Many days, like a nephew, resemble the one beforehand but they are not the one beforehand. Each was singular, spendable, eaten with pepper and salt. You go to sleep in one person's bed and wake in another's. Your face after toweling changed from the face that was washed. You go to sleep in one world and wake in another. You who were not your life, nor were stranger to it, you who were not your name, your ribs, your skin, will go as a suitcase that takes inside it the room. Only after you know this can you know this, as a knocked glass that loses what has been spilled, you will know this. You know, it really, it resonates uh, when I hear it now because um, just as you said, we, we, we are now in in another room we are waking up somewhere else what 
What do you, what, what's going through your mind, through your body when you read that and you think of where we are right now? Well, you know, every encounter with a poem is a little bit different. And this time, reading this poem to you just now, the line that stepped forward was the one about each day being singular, spendable, eaten with pepper and salt. And what came to me as I was saying that was both the treasuring of what I now refer to as the old world, mm. uh, those days when we ate with other people and and you know the the shared the shared world, the shared life. But also part of how I get through my days now is by finding what is delicious in this day. What can I find in this day which is not only the observation of the immense suffering and the immense uncertainty of the future and every day's blow that comes if you read a newspaper or watch the news. And it makes me think that, um, in fact, a poet is so well-suited to these times. A poet is so well-suited to uh, marveling at the small things or the big things. But in some ways, it seems like this is, this is the moment for, for the poet to kind of arise and to shine. Do you agree with that? Well, I feel both very lucky in that psychologically a person who treasures spending time alone quietly pondering the universe, including its abysses, is singularly well prepared for a pandemic. Um, you know, I am my psyche knows what to do with being sequestered in silence and having something very large that I need to be facing into. I also feel very lucky um, in, a, in a different way, which is poetry is able to serve. And because it is words that travel from hand to hand, tongue to tongue, pocket to pocket, pixel to pixel, a poem can go out into the world and help other people. And I think for many, one of the most difficult parts of all of this, if you're not a frontline person, if you're not an essential worker or a health worker or a caregiver, Many people feel helpless, and one of the great pieces of luck for me is that I have not felt quite so helpless because the world has been returning to me the evidence that my words are helping people, mm. and that makes a tremendous difference. And it must be helping in, in a new and different way now in terms of some of the content as well, because I, you have been so, I think out front in the last decade or even more about how much you care about what's happening to the climate, what's happening to uh, to racial or justice issues in America. But right now, the terrain is so different for us. And, and I'd love for you to kind of explore some of the ways that you're trying to help now with words, I guess. Well, I'm going to partly say that one of the things that is well worth remembering is that the terrain is not so different, mm. that all of the lasting, larger, longer-term crises, they have not been set aside. They are not on pause. Mm. We are on pause. Yeah. Our way of acting and dealing is on pause. But climate change is, you know, being, as everyone knows, uh, given a bit of a breather by the fact that all human beings all over the world have suddenly stopped. And I think about that quite often as an odd, miraculous piece of evidence 
that when we human beings are able to truly take in, because it is happening faster, because it is happening at the speed of normal daily human perception that you could go outside, you could catch something, and three weeks later you could be on a ventilator in an ICU, mm. we have changed our behavior. And if we can understand that it's only a little bit slower that all those other crises continue to unfold, the crises of the biosphere, the crises of our broken social compact with one another as human beings, this needs addressing, it needs attending. And here we all are doing this strange, totally unexpected exercise. The whole world is pretty much doing something together. And there's something to be seen in that. Um, so I've gone off on a bit of a tangent from from your question, which was how can poems help now in in a time when people are staying home? And you know, so I have learned to um, video record myself, and mm -hmm. I'm a person who had never taken a selfie. Yeah. And so one of the things I was very sad about as as soon as I realized, oh, you know, fiftieth Earth Day happened this April, yeah. and I'd. I, I just thought this is going to be an amazing expression of renewal of our of our compact with all beings and the mountains and the frogs and the and the and the microbes and suddenly no events at all. But I was asked along with the poets Joy Harjo and Naomi Shihab Nye to record a couple of poems for a special edition of an Earth Day reading. And you know, a few thousand people saw those mm. poems. Um, so it's, we, poetry, art, the mind of art, the mind that likes to look at things in a way that includes the emotions, that includes the body, that includes everything we know, all of our history, the science, the imagination. It's a bit like water. It will find the smallest crack of entry and it will travel to that place, and it will um, spread. It will disseminate itself. It will it will try to reach new destinations, new 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 trees with new thirsty roots. Mm, I love that image, and I, I also think of you in Northern California as as an incredible practitioner of Buddhism, somebody who's lived uh, who's kind of lived that life. And, and, and I wonder spiritually for you right now, where are you at? What's coming up for you in the last few months with all this happening? You know, that is such an interesting question. My first impulse with training in Zen and training in bringing Zen practice into situations of crisis was to understand that it was my task to stay of even keel so that I could be helpful to others. Yeah. So there was this immediate movement to, you know, it is not my job to fall apart. It is my job to discover ways of staying steady, encouraging self and others, living in this moment's reality, not letting my fears or anxiety, you know, be be uppermost. And for the most part, that is how I have been. Mm -hmm. um, the I, I hear descriptions of other people who have been overwhelmed by anxiety. And thus far, I have had brief moments of that, mm -hmm. which I think are important, because 
those are the emotions that tell us our response to the world. But then there were a few days when I simply plunged into a sense of the absolute surreality of this moment, the unimaginable surrealness that day after day we are all living in this changed way. And I think it was very important for me to be permeable and vulnerable to that. You know, Buddhist practice is not about um, putting on some armor that lets you travel through the world mm -hmm. and not be touched by it. There, there's a misunderstanding of it that, that leads to that idea, but it's not, it's not so. Buddhist practice is about sharing with others the knowledge that we live in a world where all our lives go forward in ways connected and interdependent, where my own well-being means nothing without the well-being of all the rest of the world. So compassion, empathy, whatever you want to use as language to describe that feeling. But it's a feeling un that isn't conceptual. Mm -hmm. It's an actual sense that if people are suffering 20 miles from me or 2,000 miles from me or in the house next door, I need to recognize that that too is the shape of my own human life. You know, the word interdependence, interconnectedness has been on my mind so heavily, especially when I think of Buddhism, because in in one level, that that's kind of how the virus spread, was human to human, that we all were moving this thing around. But now it's up to human beings to kind of get us out of this thing, to heal around us. And if nothing else, I mean, what a moment to show that aside from the technological interconnectedness that, wow, biologically, psychologically, we are still very much interconnected, don't you think? I think you are absolutely right that this has been an enormous reminder of the basic ground conditions of reality that human beings have a tendency to try to forget about, um, understandably, mm. perhaps, but this experience we are all going through is a reminder of exactly how things have always been. We just didn't see it quite so immediately, quite so fiercely. And, you know, I don't want to say there is anything good at all in a global pandemic, but I can say there is something of reality in a shared fate experience. And that is a reality we need to remember because it matters in every realm of human existence. It matters in our economic ways of going forward with one another. It matters in our politics. It matters in our day-to-day -day, um, uh, dance with the resources of the world we are part of. What do we take from it? What do we give to it? And, you know, I, I think I read in, in a recent interview or something that you had said that I don't know if it was in the last decade or so, you had begun to kind of take this bodhisattva vow a bit more seriously or with more vigor, which is, for those that don't know, kind of the the promise uh, to to end suffering, to, to exercise compassion uh, fully. Have you felt that in your work, a kind of a call to arms? Because I, I've seen a lot in your poems are, are, are being distributed widely now to activists, to people on the front lines of climate change. Has that been a greater interest to you? 
It was always an interest to me. If you go back through my early books, you will always find a certain number of poems that were looking at questions of war, looking at questions of equity, looking at questions of our relationship to the natural world. But it is absolutely true that this has strengthened enormously. Um, you know, in, in 2004, I wrote a small poem with the title Global Warming. Uh, it ended up, I was told, being used in an environmental brief mm. to an, given to an appeals court. That pleased me <laughs> wow. no end. Yep. Um, but especially from 2014 until now, so basically the poems that are in this new book, a, a ferocity came into the poems and a real understanding that I needed to speak for what does not have its own voice because it was so clear that if we continue as we are, we will destroy the beautiful earth we have had the good luck of being born into and bequeath to our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren a tremendously diminished and narrowed environment. I I look out the window every moment and I still see such beauty. And in a way, the oscillation or the tension that runs through this book is the tension between naming my fear of utter catastrophe and cataclysm and destruction and then reminding myself over and over uh, to honor the beauty of the world as it now is. Because after all, we won't work to save things if we don't treasure them. Mm. You only save, why do we want to fight against injustice so people can live in justice? Why do you want people not to go hungry so they can feast? Why do we want the ecological world not to be poisoned? Because we want the fish to be happy and our great-grandchildren to be happy. Mm. And it makes me wonder in these moments of whether it's the, the climate crisis, whether it's the pandemic, how do you, how do you remain hopeful? I, I don't know. There's some lines of a, of a poem of yours, The Wane. This is from years ago. It says, So few grains of happiness measured against all the dark, and still the scales balance. You know, there's an optimism, I find, in your work, too, along the way, balanced with the darkness. But where, where does the light come from as you continue well, this work? Thank you. And I'm going to give the next three lines just to finish the poem yeah. out. Um, uh, the world asks of us only the strength we have, and we give it. Then it asks more, and we give it. And that, that image of the scale, it has shown up in other poems over the years, this balancing act between suffering and beauty, between pain and joy, between the difficult and the things we want absolutely most because they transform our lives into, into um, radiance or giggling, whatever. Um, these... I think it has been for me a hard-won hope. And something that really helped me with this quite a long time ago, in 1985, I was co-translating poems uh, written 1,000 and 1,200 years ago by Japanese women. 
And a poem came. Uh, I was working with a Japanese collaborator who would give me, you know, the literal, and I would write down the Japanese words and all, all the possible English meanings below them. And there was one poem that I was quite sure it said something important, but I couldn't figure out what it was saying, so I couldn't translate it until I understood it. And then when I understood it, it changed my life in exactly the way you are asking about. So very short poem, 31 syllables in the Japanese. Although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. That poem changed my life because that was where I really understood that if you do not welcome the cold winds into your life and the leaky roof and the storms and the pain and the suffering and the loss, you will also be cutting yourself off from beauty, moonlight, world, the fullness of your own existence. So that lesson is what gives me hope. And that lesson is what has given me the tool to remember, if I possibly can, and I can't every single moment, there are moments of despair, but if I can, in whatever suffering, difficulty, pain, overwhelmingly unbearable condition I find myself in, I try to somehow remember that if I just look, there will be some glint of beauty somewhere in the world. I might not feel it in me, but it will be in the world. And to see that, to recognize it, to be able to take it in, that opens a door within yourself to be able to leave the abyss and refine your way to a world you can bear to live in and even more, you want to live in. Those words mean so much to me right now and to what's happening. And, and, and I, it just seems like those are more important now than maybe they have been in, in years. Thank you. And, and, you know, for me also, it is, I need, nothing I've ever written or ever said is, is anything uh, before it is advice to myself. Um, you know, we are always finding ways ourselves. Why do I do something every day? Why do I take some action every day? I do it because for me that is the cure to despair. And I think art making is also a cure for despair, a cure against depression, against giving up. Um, because if you can put one word next to another in a way you never have before, you have stepped into a field of freedom. You might not be able to change anything outside your own house right now, but if you put together two words in a way that a little spark arises from them that has never known itself in this world before, there is freedom. And when there's freedom, when there's any sense of agency, when there's a sense of increased possibility, uh, despair retreats and joy at least waves at you from a distance, a little glimmer, a gleam of moonlight through a, through a gap in a roof. 
Well, Jane Hirschfield, thank you so much for sharing your work, your time, your thoughts with us from um, from up in Northern California today. Thank, thank you again for everything. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for your conversation, for your depth of attention, and for what you bring to your listeners. I'm, I'm very grateful to join the conversation. Jane Hirschfield is the author of a new poetry collection called Ledger. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastian at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.